All right, Nehemiah 13. That's where we're going to be today. It's in the Old Testament. We are finishing up our series of messages on Nehemiah, which is a rather obscure Old Testament book. You've got First uh, and Second Samuel. Ooh, books of the Bible songs. A little, a little. First and Second Samuel. First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah. All right, there we go. So that's about where it is. And um, we are um, it, midway through. Or we are, it's midway through the Old Testament, but chronologically, it's actually the end of the Old Testament. And we have been in Nehemiah since August. And so today is the last day. Next week, we may do just kind of a summary wrap-up message, but today is we're going to handle the last chapter of Nehemiah. So if you're here for the first time, that's just a little background of where we are. You're coming in on the tail. I'm going to miss Nehemiah. I have loved uh, learning from him and being immersed in his book, and I hope that you have benefited from it as well. Hey, a couple things before we crank it up. We've got a couple young guys here that are lieutenants in the Army. I think they're here for the first time. Landon, Carl, right there, raise your hand. Landon, and his, he's got two buddies that are officers. Uh, one's from Pennsylvania and one's from uh, the nation of California, like I am. Uh, raise your hands, guys. They're right there in the middle. They're training at Fort Benning. They're just here for a couple weeks. Yeah, give it up. Yeah. We salute you guys and your service to our nation in a difficult time. And as we uh, thank God for their service, and let's remember Bob Landig, who's a guy here at Crosspoint. His wife Amy is part of the church, and Bob is in Iraq serving with the 3rd Infantry Division. Got an email from him this week just saying hello. And uh, also, um, also let's give a, uh, remember Quinn MacArthur. He's a, a young guy that's in Iraq as well that went through Crosspoint for a while. And then um, we've got Nick Privet, who's in Afghanistan. And uh, he's in the middle of the thick there. And, and Bob sent me an email this week saying, hey, um, I'm starting off. I'm on the first couple messages of Nehemiah when I have time in the midst of fighting a war. Um, he's, he's catching up with the Nehemiah messages. So let's do this. Um, this mic doesn't pick up crowd audience too well. But I know that some of these guys are, um, are around the world. Bob in particular, a couple of these guys are listening to these messages, being encouraged as they've got their flak jackets and their Kevlars, Kevlars on and their M16s locked and loaded for us. So, hey, let's, let's uh, loud and proud give it up for these guys. Let them know. Yeah. 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 All right. Yes. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's get into Nehemiah 13 today. And today is the first Sunday of the month. I love first Sundays. It's the Sunday that we set aside to receive communion together as a church. And so if you're a Christian, whether you're from Crosspoint or not, you're a believer in Jesus, we invite you at the end of this message to, with us, in a little bit more of a formal way, receive communion. What we do is we have a couple guys stationed down here. We'll have everybody stand. We come down to receive communion together. These little chips of bread represent Jesus' broken body that took all of our sin and received and satisfied the punishment and the wrath of God that should have been ours on the cross. And the little cups of juice represent his blood, which is his new covenant with us, which is a covenant of grace. And so it's not just rote religious tradition or something we do out of heritage. We are connecting ourselves with that first century church and with Jesus' words of instruction to say, when you gather, do this and remember the cross. And that's ultimately what we're doing here today. We are remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so we're going to read a pretty obscure chapter in the Old Testament. 
about a people who were on a building project to rebuild the city of God, but ultimately this chapter in Nehemiah 13 is, like everything is, suspiciously here at Crosspoint, about Jesus. So um, let's pray and uh, ask God. And let, me, let me just pause, uh, just a little moment of self-indulgence here, because I have the microphone. Um, I, I just, every now and again, I just need to tell you how much I'm thankful I am for my wife. <clears throat> I'm coming up here in a couple of weeks. I'm not in trouble, so don't worry. Um, it's just, as every now and again, God, by His grace and by His Holy Spirit, just gives me a wave of realization of how good God has been to me in uh, the gift of my wife. We're coming up, up on 15 years in December. That's hard to imagine. Just the other day, I was a lieutenant at Fort Benning with no hair and one eyebrow. And... <laughs> And um, I wandered into Evangel Temple, and a lady about my mom's age with red hair invited me to lunch, and her daughter came along, jackpot, and we, we were married, and um, I just, I can't thank God enough for her. Um, I, you guys get to see the, the good side of my personality, I'm likable, I hope, and you know, somewhat charismatic and joyous, but I'm an intense, driven person, and there's a complex side to my personality, and she lives with that, and she raises four kids, and so, and I just, I love you, I love you. I lo- <laughs> Again, I'm not in trouble, I'm, I'm not, uh, but when I do get in trouble, just remember that. All right, let's go. <clears throat> Nehemiah 13, let me pray. Thank you, Jesus. For the Bible, for this book, Lord, I know that sometimes lists of names in the Old Testament can be boring, and um, historical narratives like this, we can ask ourselves the question here as arrogant Americans in 2009 who are ruled by pragmatism. We can ask ourselves the faulty question of, well, what, what good... And what application does this have to my life? But God, help us to realize that when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, he said to remember these scriptures. And in those scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament, which included Nehemiah. And he said, they are able to make you wise for salvation. And so, God, there is in these Words that we are about to read today is the glorious truth of Jesus on the cross and Jesus risen in victory over sin and death and all its consequences. So God, would you help us and we need your Holy Spirit. We don't need the clever thoughts of a cute, charismatic, funny, hip person, preacher, and I'm not any of those things, but we don't need that. We need serious gravity mixed with gladness. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to illuminate this truth to us today. And so, God, give us wisdom. Blow through this old schoolhouse with your grace. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are three mistakes that the people make in Nehemiah chapter 13. And then there are three observations that I want to make for us as we conclude this chapter. Okay, so there's going to be three mistakes and uh, I've given them one word, and they all start with an S. And usually I mock that type of preaching. 
And so now I am what I am mocking. <laughs> but three mistakes that the people make. That, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think it's very helpful. I just think that sometimes if you try and come up with a word that starts with the same letter at the sake of the truth, it can be dangerous. But anyway, this actually fit. So we're going to look at three mistakes that the people made and then three observations and then we'll receive communion together. Chapter 13, verse 1. All right, so what's happened up to this point is that the people of God have been in captivity under Persian captivity, Babylonian, then Persian captivity. They are slaves to a foreign pagan king. And Nehemiah asks for the permission of the pagan king to go back to rebuild the all-important city of Jerusalem so that God's people could once again be about making God great to all the nations. And this pagan king gives them the permission to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. And they have done that. Now, we've read about that over these past weeks. And they have completed this wall. And now... God can begin to work through his people in his city again because God's intention for the Old Testament nation of Israel was not so that he would just gather one people amongst all the peoples of the earth and make them his favorites, but that he would show Israel his favor, give them a land, bless them, and then through them let them be a light to all the world. And so why are we studying Nehemiah? Because it's the same for us as the church. God doesn't want us to just be selfish, cul-de-sac Christians. He wants to gather a city of God, the church, in our day and in our age, like Jerusalem. And through that group of people, he wants to bless all the peoples of the earth. But we'll read here, and this will be strangely encouraging, that the people are still, even after all God has done for them, still, still incredibly messed up. And I find that incredibly encouraging. So let's go. Nehemiah 13.1. On that day, this is the end of the book. Now they've rebuilt the city. They're back in the city. They're living in the city. And now they're into just the maintenance of everyday life. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And the book of Moses is the Torah or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of what we know as our Bible, the first five books of the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Balaam's a story, if you're not familiar with it, in the book of Numbers, where this, the Moabites, they hired Balaam, who's this false prophet, to bring cursings on Israel. And God even uses this false prophet, gets in his head, does this amazing Jedi mind trick, starts speaking to this guy. And here's this false guy who doesn't even know God. And he's like, whoa, you know, God's talking to me. So God actually uses this false prophet for his purposes, has his donkey speak to the guy saying, stop beating me. It's an amazing story. I think it's in Numbers chapter 21. It'll blow your mind. And here's the point. This doesn't have much to do with what we're doing today. But if God can speak through the, heart, through the mouth of a donkey, he can do anything. And he can, he can use me to preach as well. So let's keep going. Don't, don't extrapolate that too much. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God, this is a great line, turned the curse into a blessing. <laughs> Underline that mug. Put it on a three by five note and slap it on your bathroom mirror. God is a God that turns curses into blessings. Verse three, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Let me pause here. I don't have time to get in this too much, but this is not an endorsement of the separation of races. We have to understand what's happening in the redemptive timeline of God in the Bible. 
in this time, God is forming his people, which are an ethnic people, Jerusalem. But he's never just about their ethnicity, but their ethnicity was tied up into their faith in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Jacob and Joseph and Isaac. And so these other cultures, other ethnicities had all these pagan false gods. And so when God, when you read about racial division in the Old Testament and God's demands of racial purity in the Old Testament. That is not an endorsement for that in our day and age. It's what God is doing in the redemptive timeline at that time, purifying a people for himself. It has always been God's intention that all the peoples of the earth would praise him and be joined together. And in heaven, we read in the New Testament in Revelation that there will be every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And in fact, I'll take it one step further. I think that the mixing of the races is an absolutely God-glorifying thing. And if we identify ourselves more by our Caucasianness or our blackness or our Latinoness or our Americanness or our Southernness or whatever it is, we are unbiblical and in deep air. Because what identifies us as people of God is the fact that we are God's children, black, white, and Mexican alike. Amen? All right, let's keep going. Not even a point, but you could say right on on that. Right on. All right. Verse four. Now, before this, now this is, listen to this. This is, we're getting into the first air here. This is, this is amazing. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah. Remember that name, Tobiah. Tobiah was the guy that in the first couple chapters, along with this cat named Sanballat, was trying to stop Israel from going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. He was one of the guys who was massing armies so as to defeat them and prevent them from doing the very mission that they now have completed. And so now all of a sudden, Eliashib, one of the Jews who's evidently got some responsibilities over the chambers and the house, has now brought his second cousin on his mama's third, fourth side, this cat named Tobiah, and he's given him a place... In the house. Talk about letting the wolf into the hen house. And Nehemiah is away checking back in with the king. When the cat's away, the mice do stupid things. All right. So Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of God, of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites. Isn't it interesting that nobody's scratching their head saying, Hey, um, Eliashib, isn't this the cat that was massing armies against us in chapter 2? It was... <laughs> I, I, they, they didn't know. But isn't this the guy? I mean, are we, are we, are we going to make a house for him right now in our, in our temple? I mean, is that problematic? I mean, just kind of letting the wolf into the hen house. But everybody's just walking along. Oh, oh, it's off to it. Just going, just gullible, ignorant, heads in the sand, not alert. Verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked um, and I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So what has happened is, remember, Nehemiah, the first chapter, remember, he is the cup bearer for the king. He is, as a Jew, they're still under captivity. Like it would still be like the Russians being in charge of us. They're still a captive nation. Israel is not 
free, even though they've been allowed to go back and rebuild this. And Nehemiah, their leader and governor, is still employed by Artaxerxes, and he just took a 12-year leave of absence. And so now he has to go back, check in with the pagan king, and when he goes, when daddy leaves the house, when the guy that's got some oomph and some wisdom and some discernment leaves... All sorts of crazy stuff starts breaking loose. They're bringing Tobiah in, making him a house. Craziness. So, so Nehemiah comes back and he realizes what's happening, happening and he gets a little hot under the collar. And it gets interesting, interesting from here. Verse 8. And I was very angry. <laughs> Listen to this. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So he takes his furniture, his lazy boy, his remote control, his Vizio Plasma 48-incher, and he chucks it out the window. I mean, (laughs) all right. He doesn't just say, oh, man, you shouldn't have left. He goes berserk. Verse 9. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Here's mistake number one that Israel made in this chapter as they're settling into life. And this is the air, and hopefully maybe some of you have never heard of this word. I'm going to teach it to you. It's the air of syncretism. And what that means is, is that they tried to synchronize this foreign pagan culture And their culture as the people of God worshiping the one true God. In other words, they were okay with blending with the world. Now, we make a big point here to say that we're not separatists. In fact, kind of this Christian uh, mentality in fundamental kind of Christian culture where we have to retreat from culture, dig our bunkers, and isolate ourselves from the world, I think is in and of itself an error. Jesus tells us that we're to be salt and light. Second uh, Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that we are to be ambassadors, ambassadors of reconciliation. So God has sent the church out into the world. But so we have to walk this balance between not retreating from culture, but going into culture and letting ourselves, the truth of our knowledge of God, influence culture rather than letting culture influence us. And what has happened here in these verses is the people have let Tobiah and the foreign cultures influence them. And Nehemiah comes back and he just goes berserk. And so the point for us is, and the mistake of the people and the point for us is, are there areas in our lives where we're just syncing up with culture unwisely? We're exposing ourselves to things that will ultimately pollute our spirits. Here's a question. What Tobias have we let into our chambers? Right? I know I, I bang on this a lot, but a vast majority of what's on on TV is just filled with garbage, isn't it? I mean, I was trying to watch the football games the other day, and it was just, I mean, even that in between, it's just, I mean, can, does every product in America have to be promoted by a half-dressed, unnaturally beautiful woman? Women, most of them, don't look like that, right? And it's just so alluring, and their midriffs are showing. And by the way, women, this part of you, that, that nobody needs to see that except for your husband. That is, that is toxic to a young man. And it's just it was filled, sexual innuendo, coarse joking, and we just take it in, do we not? And so we need men. We need to be Nehemiahs in our own household. We will just go ballistic 
And we will be willing to throw the Vizio or the computer or whatever that might be just sucking the life out of our children and our wife. And you think it doesn't have an effect on the women in your world? You think all these ridiculously, unnaturally beautiful, skinny girls. And by the way, girls need to have some meat on their hips because don't get me started. But this uh, I'm, I'm getting off track. Don't let me get. But the point is, is that who guards who guards the gate? Men need to guard the gate. The men need to guard the gate and we just take in trash and we wonder why we are confused and dazed and disconnected and easily offended and what Tobias have we let into our chamber? Many. There's grace. There's grace and we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. All right, let's keep going. So the first error is syncretism. Verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites, the Levites are, Levites are one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are the priests. They're kind of like the pastors and shepherds. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. And so basically what's happening, and let me preface all this by saying that this is not my little manipulative way to try and increase you to you know manipulate you to give more so that my salary will increase that first of all i don't see the money i don't set my salary but what's happening here is that the people are not giving to the work of the lord and that is making the priests have to go out and get an extra job at home depot or lowe's at night instead of being able to dedicate themselves to their duty of serving the people as priests in the house of God. And so Nehemiah comes back and he realizes that these people are being selfish. And again, he gets upset. Verse 11. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. I just love it. So definitive. Nehemiah is just like, you can just imagine him grabbing dudes and saying, you stand here. You know, just kind of give him a little verse 13. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe and Padiah, the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Okay, so error number one was syncretism. Error number two is that they just became selfish. Right? God was blessing them. They were back in their own land. They're starting to get some crops. Things are growing. Everything's happening. And, and now, once again, they turn inward. And we have to watch for that very same error in our day. This is, again, not some manipulation saying you should give more. We're not talking about finances here or pastoral salaries. We're talking about a group of people who see that God's blessing is never meant to terminate on them, but rather God wants us to turn outward and not be selfish. And so the first error is syncretism. The second error is selfishness. And now we're going to get into the third error, verse 15. Okay, Nehemiah really goes postal crazy here in, in these next verses. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day of rest where God's people were supposed to rest as God rested, not that he needed rest, but God was taking pleasure in his creation in Genesis and he calls his people into this rest to remind them of their reliance on him and so for the Jewish people, the sundown on Friday night, all the way to sundown on Saturday night was supposed to be a day of rest where they did no work and no business and no, um, no exchanging of goods. So uh, it's, 
Nehemiah comes and they're working. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold the food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. So what's happening is, look, God has worked through them to rebuild the city and it's being blessed. Stuff is happening. People are on the streets again. Markets are opening. The recession is over. The stock market is up. And instead of realizing and thanking God and heeding His way, they're forgetting about God and just going about their business and trying to pad their 401k. And Nehemiah gets upset. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, verse 16, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut. Remember, they built this wall and it was a gate to keep the foreign armies out. It was a protective wall for the city of Jerusalem. I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. So what's happening is word is getting out on the street from all the foreign people that are living around Jerusalem that, hey, the the neon open sign is on. So let's go. Let's make some money off these Jews. Let's let's set up camp. All the carnies, you know, they're hanging their stuff. The little tailgaters are coming. They're selling t-shirts. The guy's shooting his little gun. T-shirts over the wall. You know, people, people, they're, they got their little, the guy with the trench coat. It's like Chinatown in New York City. There's people everywhere selling everything. And what it's doing is it's drawing the heart of the people away from God who is saying, no, live my way, live in my rhythm of life. Don't get sucked into the materialism and the consumerism that can so easily deceive you. And what they were doing is they were camping outside of the walls so that when on Black Friday they hit the open switch, people could rush into the gates of Jerusalem and start doing business. But we wouldn't know anything about that, would we? And this is what Nehemiah does. Verse 21. I love this. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? And I was talking to these foreigners who were preying upon the consumptive, selfish attitude of the Jews. He said, if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. (laughs) That's a biblical way of saying, I will bust you in a noodle. Contrast that, though, with kind of the weak, passive, effeminate, ministerial talk of our day oh brother we got a pastor preacher governor here saying if you run that junk outside of my city i'll take your teeth out home slice i mean there's some strength there right this applies to leaders it applies it applies to dads and parents Who's encamped outside the wall of your house? 
who's trying to suck your children in to just the, 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 the seductive culture, the, the modern-day Babylon that we live in? And dads, are we willing to say to a little punk friend or a trend socially for our kids or a show or a whatever or a music or a whatever to say, and again, I'm not the separatist guy at all, but do we have men and parents that will stand up and say, that's not coming into my city, and if you come into my city, I will punch you in the mouth. I'm not saying you beat up your girl, your daughter's teenage boyfriend. That would be illegal. I'm talking about symbolically, spiritually here. Who? Come on. Come on. We need men that, that are willing to lay hands on people. Symbolically, again, I don't want this to be recorded in a court of law saying, my pastor told me to punch him in the mouth. Huh? <laughs> I have thoughts of somebody in this church running for office someday, and I will be like their Jeremiah Wright. You know what I mean? Anyway. Glory. Glory. Yeah. All right. Verse 23. Let's keep going. All right. So, so, so let, me, let me stop here and say... That the air number one was syncretism. Air number two was selfishness. Air number three, and boy, this is prevalent in our society. It's so pervasive. Air number three is self-reliance. Why, why does God, we could talk for a, a month about the Sabbath and this principle of rest. And again, in the Sabbath, we're not saying that it needs to be a particular day, but this principle that we need to remember, we need to get into this rhythm of life where we remember that we need God, that we need to rest, that just another thing, another possession, another, another promotion, another whatever. Do you see how, see how if we're not careful, it can suck the life out of us and we forget. And then we're just trying to increase, increase, increase. And before we know it, we have foreign armies at our gates, not shooting arrows at us, but drawing us away with their seductive fallen culture. And God wants to remind us, I think, by calling a busy, distracted American culture to rest, to rest, to rest, and to enjoy God's presence on a rhythm, in a rhythm, weekly. Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher, and he wrote a book a couple centuries ago called Pensies, a French word for thought. And he uh, said in his chapter on diversions that the problem with modern man is that he cannot sit alone in his room and be happy. And that to, to, to cover up our fear of aloneness and our fear, our dread of just having to deal with ourselves that we, we go through a million diversions in life. We do more, we buy more, we get more, we schedule more. And I'm not saying that we're not busy in this room, but isn't it ironic, and, and, and Pascal touches upon this, he says, isn't it ironic, or ironic that modern man, in all his inventions, that all the things that he's invented don't actually save him time, they create more work for him. And he goes on to say that when you have um, this dread of being alone and faced with your own Soul and just kind of the distance between you and God and what you're really supposed to be synced up to that, that you realize that, that subconsciously that in the middle of the living room of your life, there's a rhinoceros there. And he says, how do you cover up a rhinoceros? With a million mice, a million different little diversions. And so I think some of us are just busy because we can't stand to sit still and deal 
with the hollowness of our own hearts. That's why the Sabbath is so important. Because we need to reconnect with God. Error number one is syncretism. Error number two is selfishness. Error number three is self-reliance. And let me finish up the chapter, then make three observations. And I love this, verse 23. In those days, Nehemiah gets crazy again. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod. And the rest of this chapter is going to talk a little bit more about their air of syncretism. Ammon and Moab, verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. Look, our kids know all this stuff. You know how quick, I mean, kids just know. They know, when I was a little kid, I knew Rod Carew's batting average when he was in the minor leagues. And if you don't know who Rod Carew is, you're dated. I mean, I'm a, he was a great hitter back. I mean, he, he, you had to know. You had to be a baseball. I, I knew what Tommy Lasorda had for lunch before the Dodger game that day. I knew everything, but I didn't know anything about the Bible. And we raise our kids up to just know the language of the culture, to be hip, to know everything except like the word. And that's what's happening here. Verse 25. And do you guys really not know who Rod Carew is? Oh, gosh, what am I dealing with here? Okay, verse 25. And verse 25, and I confronted them. Listen to this. So Nehemiah comes back and he realizes that the people have not been teaching their children the ways of God, the language of Judah, the native tongue. And he goes, he does more than throw furniture out and threaten guys verbally. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That just happened. That needs no commentary. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign, men, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So Nehemiah is saying, look, don't do this. Don't sink yourself up with this culture unwisely. God has formed us so that we would be a witness into this culture, not so that this culture would overtake us. Verse 28, and on one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And this is the way, this is one of the reasons I love the Bible and believe it. One of the many reasons why I believe it is because it doesn't tidy itself up, right? It just, uh, this is a, can we admit this is an unsatisfactory end to this book? The people are, finally God blesses and they're back in the city and they just are whack. Nehemiah starts off the chapter throwing some dude's furniture out on the front lawn, verbally threatening another guy that's a foreigner, taking his own people, beating them down on the ground, cursing at them, pulling out their hair. Pulling out their hair, that's a, (laughs) do you realize how painful that would be? Like, you, you have to, that's not rage. You've gone beyond rage. Now, you are deciding to stay in the anger and rip hair out. And then he chases another guy off. And that's how it ends in verse 31 says, remember me, oh my God, for my good. And that's it. All right. 
Well, that's the end of Nehemiah. (laughs) And that's it for the rest of the Old Testament. Even though there's more books in the Old Testament, those are prophetic books. This is the last of the historical books. All of the prophetic books that are after Nehemiah are synced up somehow along with Israel's journey. So when you read Isaiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Micah and Malachi, and all those are prophets that were living in the time of these guys. And so chronologically, this is the end. And now the Lord goes silent for some 400 years. And then Jesus comes. But let me give you three observations and then we'll receive communion. The first observation is is that the human heart needs accountability and supervision. Nehemiah left just to go check back in with his employer. And when he comes back, the people are jacked up. That's how we are. That's why we need, we need, we need community. You need to have your name be known. You need men, you need other men in your life who ask you like, where you are. That when you go out of town on a business trip, you need other men praying for you. There's a guy in this church, and I love him. I think he's one of the finest men I know, actually. And I know his character to be impeccable. And I know he loves his wife, and I know he loves Jesus, and I know he knows the scriptures. And we get together on a weekly basis, and we pray, and we were with a group of guys around the table, and he says, guys, I'm going away for a business trip. Would you pray for me that God would... I want you to know I'm going to be gone. I want you to pray for me because... You know, it's vulnerable being there in a hotel room all by yourself at night. And every one of us other men around the table, we, we didn't have to say, I don't know what you speak of, brother. We all knew what he was talking about. And we prayed for that brother. And we know his name. And he knows our name. And we know each other's hearts. We, we, need, we need community. That's observation number one. Number two. Sometimes it takes something drastic to wake us up. Nehemiah freaked out. I'm not, I mean, this is historical narrative. We have to learn how to read scripture. Some truth in the scripture is propositional. So when Paul says, don't do this, we can receive that as a command from the Lord saying, okay, don't do this. But then other times there are historical narratives, meaning it's a story. And so this is not licensed for you as a leader to kick people in the stomach, punch them in the face, and pull out their hair or throw their furniture out on the lawn. It's not, this is not mine and Reynolds and Hawk's new leadership style. And this is not, dads, again, just to get this on record in case we missed it earlier, this is not endorsement for you, dad, to beat up your teenage daughter's hairy-legged boyfriend. But some, almost it is, but not quite. But, but sometimes what, what we need is like people that will have a passion who will not be okay with the way things are. We need pastors who are like that. We need preachers who are like that. We need dads who are like that. We need moms who are like that. We need young guys who are like that. We need young ladies like that. We need a church full of people who just can't stand it when things aren't like they should be. And they're willing to get crazy for half of a second to try and make it right. Without sinning in their craziness. Because they burn with a passion for the things of God. And it's okay sometimes. We have to build in grace in our culture for people to be passionate in love. But strength. 
realizing that sometimes when we confront each other and we tried this hard work of living together, that it may not come out all right. But at the bottom of that is love for God's name and love for his people. And then thirdly and finally, and then we'll end, and I think this is incredibly encouraging, is that God does not give up on his people. Even our messy struggle can glorify him. Think about this for a second. The Old Testament and the New Testament is full of references to the sovereign, providential, good God. In the book of Daniel, a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar, who before Artaxerxes becomes the Persian Empire leader to uh, hold God's people in captivity, this pagan king says about God rightly, he says that, that, that the God that's in heaven, the Jewish God, he does whatever he pleases. Nothing can stop his hand. But yet we see God who has called these people, this God who can do whatever he wants. He, for some reason, allows them to go through the mess. Like, think about this for a second. The same God who opened up the Red Sea, who caused ten plagues to come to Egypt, who, who causes loaves of bread and birds to fall over dead as food for Israel on a daily basis, who makes water come out of a rock, who is all-powerful, now seems to be allowing his people to stumble along once they've got back to the promised land. That is, that's, that's amazing to me. And so that even in our struggle and our mess and our futility, Jesus is working out his glory in us. And so are you, are you a person struggling with syncretism? Have you let Tobias into your chamber? Jesus doesn't give up on you. Are you selfish? Jesus doesn't give up on you. Are you pridefully, arrogantly, ignorantly, self-reliant? Jesus doesn't give up on you. Let me read a scripture and then we'll receive communion. It's in Romans chapter 8. Probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. In fact, I memorized the last portion of this scripture earlier this week. Romans 8.28 says, listen to the, this is a coffee cup verse. This is a verse we put on t-shirts for youth groups. And so a lot of times when you have t-shirt coffee cup verses, they lose their power because we become so familiar with them. But listen to the stunning, spectacular nature of this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so if we blow this verse up and amplify it and get down into it with the microscope, that means that our syncretism, our selfishness, and our self-reliance somehow God uses for his glory and our good. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those, <clears throat> those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is an all-powerful God. And that's past tense, who is working and, in fact, has worked out all things together for the good of those who have responded to his call. So two people in this room, Christians, who are struggling with syncretism, self-reliance, and selfishness. Be encouraged.
Be encouraged. Jesus has not cast you away. John 10, he says, nothing can snatch you from my hand. Let the truth of that push you into God's grace. And let the, let the angst of Nehemiah rise up in your heart so that you will attack your life with holy fervor. You, has it become clear to you in the last 40 minutes that you're not a Christian? Is Jesus calling you right now? Has it become clear that you need to receive him? Then what you do is you repent and you believe. You repent and you believe. You turn from self-reliance, selfishness, syncretism, and you believe in Jesus. It's not just a one-time hit. It's the beginning of a new life where all of your sins are taken away. There's no three steps. You don't fill out a form. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, recite after me a prayer. Those things can be helpful, but that's not what causes you to be born again. What causes you to be born again is God. And as a response to His grace, you exercise faith, which is repenting, turning from these self-reliant ways and believing in Him. And then the rest of that chapter is so beautiful. Is what then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who brings any charge against the jacked up people in Nehemiah 13 or the American confused Christian? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody, because it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. See, it should have been me and it should have been you, but, which is an imperfect sacrifice, but Jesus died and he's perfect. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who satisfied all of the wrath of the Father. More than that, he didn't stay in the grave. He was raised. And he's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake. This is speaking to God now. This is not a promise of prosperity. This doesn't mean that everything will go okay. Sometimes we die. Sometimes we get cancer. Sometimes we pass away. Sometimes a young wife wakes up and she's, she, she's got a, a, a chronic illness. Sometimes a husband gets cancer. Sometimes Christians at the end of Hebrews 11 get sawn in half for the sake of the name of Jesus. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, <laughs> nor anything, nothing in this world, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation, nor height nor depth, right? Nor anything else in all creation, nor powers, nor height nor depth will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not my syncretism, not my hypocrisy, not my confusion, not my guilt, not my shame, not my self-reliance, 
not my selfishness, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Lord, thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Lord, we wear our religious faces because that's what we're trained to do in America. We all have our church face. But that gets us nowhere. So Jesus, would you come now and would you make us courageous and honest and passionate? And would you help us now be honest with ourselves? Would you help us not cover the rhinoceroses in our life with a million mice? And Lord, for those of us who are Christians in here today who are fighting the the fight of our sanctification, would you illuminate to our hearts and our minds areas where we need to get drastic and passionate like Nehemiah? And then, God, like a mighty river, would you pour in grace? And in a strange combination, would you simultaneously convict us and encourage us like only you can do through your Holy Spirit? And Lord, for those of us who are in this room who it has become evident by the grace of the Holy Spirit that they did not know Jesus, would you, would you cause that person right now to repent and believe? Would you cause them, as First Peter says, to be born again? If that's you, friends, what you do right now is you turn, you trust. It's a... It's a decision of faith. It's an act of faith in your heart where you don't simply agree with the Bible or with the person and work of Jesus on the cross, but you acknowledge that his sacrifice is perfect, sinless substitute. It's for you. And it satisfied God's anger and it turned God's anger into God's favor for you, for all those that would repent and believe. And so it's an act of faith. You believe, you trust, you acknowledge. And then faith means not just agreeing with something, but it means putting the weight of your life on it. It means standing on it. So you trust in it. You now, you receive him. You give your your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations and your very life to follow him because he's not a nervous deity in heaven hoping you will choose him, but he's the savior, creator, king who now for your good and his glory commands you to live a life of joyful obedience and worship to him. He's the king. You're the created. Come into his kingdom now. By trusting in the good and gracious king. As we receive in just a moment this meal, realize that his body was broken for you and his blood was spilled for you and he's risen in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. This is not a promise of carefree perfection here on this earth. It's an eternal, it's an eternal promise of a reward and joy here and forevermore. But Jesus, would you do that for some of my friends who need that today? If that's you, and you need to just talk to somebody afterwards, hey, I'm going to stick around. I don't have anything else going on that's more important than talking to you about Jesus. If you need to talk to somebody, me or somebody else that you know that's a Christian, stick around, talk to us. 
For the rest of us, let's, let's push in. Let's have the passion of Nehemiah coupled with the power of Jesus and the grace of the Holy Spirit to live lives pleasing to him. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.